The Persistent and Nasty Podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the persistent and nasty podcast elaine here how are you all doing well as i said you were going to get two episodes today and here you are number two and this is more in our spooky season in this episode i chat with the brilliant therese bradley scottish actress and singer who is just a total and utter inspiration we chat about the films that she has made horror movies in particular um that she's made and that kind of shift in horror and the freedom that it gives you as an artist to play and find different levels and it's really wonderful. We also talk about um, motherhood and uh, caring responsibilities not just for your children but for those elderly relatives in your life. Just for those of you who are in those roles at the moment remembering that when you sometimes just need a break there is absolutely nothing wrong with that and in fact it's vital and so important for you. Um, so please all of you keep that in mind Uh, Therese is an absolute joy and I know that you're all going to love today's episode as much as I loved talking to Therese and we also talk a little bit about um, special spiritual moments so I'd say maybe make sure you've got some tissues handy you can follow us on all social media Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty. Send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. You can follow both Louise and I on social media. Louise is at Ms. Louise Oliver on both Instagram and Twitter. And I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. Um, for this episode, oh, something fruity, fabulous, maybe something sparkly, maybe a little Prosecco, a nice crisp glass of wine. I mean, I don't drink white wine, but... Um, a really nice glass of white wine um i have tried orange wine and i did really enjoy it so maybe a little one of them a cocktail mocktail whatever you fancy but you know you can always just have a good old cup of tea sit back relax and enjoy well hello lovely listeners and welcome to another episode of the persistent and nasty podcast today i am joined by the brilliant therese bradley yeah welcome how are you i'm very well very good Good. now therese um for people who don't know who you are and how dare they please give us a little potted history of you and your pathway through this crazy mad mental wonderful industry of ours Oh God, yeah, it's a long story. Um, Great, I, I love a long story. Please yeah, feel free. I'll, I'll, try and, I'll try and keep it concise. Well, I kind of, I started back, my peer group is 
way back in the day of, you know, the early 80s, mid 80s with the Scottish Youth Theatre. Um, my peer group was, you know, Blythe Duff, Dougie Henshaw, um, Jerry Butler. They were all, you know, Tony Curran, were all my sort of peers at the Scottish Youth Theatre. And then um, I basically moved to London because I met an actor in the Griffin. I moved to London with him. I'm going to skip over it very quickly. <laughs> That's okay. But for everybody who's from Scotland and in particular Glasgow, the Griffin, the institution yeah. of the pub. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, across the road for the Kings, where this yeah. actor doing a play, and I ended up moving to London with this guy who turned out to be a psychotic, violent nutter. So I escaped from him. Really end glad. Of that chapter, yeah, yeah, with the with the help basically of brilliant women who just reached in and got me and said, "If you want to escape from this situation, I'll give you somewhere to live." I went, "Yes, please," and off I went. So. I kind of, I'll be honest, that experience because he was an actor really destroyed my confidence for quite a long time. Only in that area. I was also a um, very accomplished singer and I sort of went over more to the kind of rock, rock and roll side of things. So I ended up living with the brilliant Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols who was a dear, dear friend and a great sort of supporter and really helped me kind of reclaim all my skill and talent and belief in myself. You know, so I just want to mention good men as well. Yes, absolutely. Mention the bad one or his name because I don't even want to think about it. Absolutely. But, so I moved on from there through my 20s. I toured Japan with two brilliant big mad DJs called Queen Maxine and Vicky Red and the, we got that came about by literally me getting up in the women's tent in Gay Pride 1990 and I got up a wee bit worse for wear and picked up a microphone which is you don't do that back in the day you didn't pick up a DJ's microphone that was only there in case there was an emergency <laughs> I could tell everybody to exit, you know, the tent very quickly. And I sang and I got such an amazing reaction because even the DJs who looked at me like, what is she doing? Um, were like, fuck, yes, you know. Yeah. I ended up, from that, two Japanese women came up at the end and we ended up touring Japan, which is a just an extraordinary story. I so love that so get, much. Tokyo, Osaka. You know, bottles of champagne brought to us before we went on stage. Not a very clever thing to do to a Scotswoman. But anyway, <laughs> so as the years went through my 20s, I kind of became very aware that um, the music industry at that time was exploding with the Spice Girls and all that stuff. And that wasn't, I was a wee bit more, you know, tricky Porter's Head kind of singer. Um, and I decided that I wanted to go back and do a degree in acting. So I went to Middlesex University and I trained under the guise of John Wright, told by an idiot, you know, I kind of worked as I left there. I worked with David Glass, um, the lovely Marcello Magni, who recently passed away, yeah. Kathleen Hunter, Dickie Clues, you know, all these amazing kind of physical height and theatre actors 
And that was the kind of beginnings of my, you know, as I just graduated. And then I seemed to just, I just got that lovely wee break because I wasn't out of, I tr obviously I was 31 when I came out of university, um, which back in the day I did have silly directors, men telling me, oh, that's it, you'll never really work because you're way too old. Yeah. And um, and I guess they were only kind of citing what they believed to be true at the time. And actually it probably was because you're talking, you know, 97, that kind of time. And it was like 31 was over the hill. Mm -hmm. But I just refused to um, believe that or, or absorb it, um, you know, because by that point in my life, I had survived so much crazy stuff. I kind of realized I get to make up the rules. I get to decide what's going to unfold in front of me um, to an extent. Obviously, there are gatekeepers everywhere, but, yeah. you know, you've got to be I weak, persistent. <laughs> yeah. um, definitely, I would say persistent was one of my, and still is one of my um, great qualities is, you know, I don't really take no for an answer. Great. So then I... Joined a little co-op. Then I got my first wee telly job in Glasgow Kiss. And then I got a wee break where I went along and auditioned for a film called Young Adam, David McKenzie's first feature. And I got the part of Gwen, um, playing alongside Tilda Swinton and Ewan McGregor, playing Tilda's wee horrible sister. And that kind of really did take off. I, I went to the Cannes Film Festival. The film got a standing ovation. Da, 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 da. And from there, I sort of moved on. And I did do, you know, which is my first horror film, was not too long after that, um, called Half Light. And that starred Demi Moore and lots of our uh, Scottish lovely, you know, big Jimmy Cosmo. <laughs> played the policeman in it and just brilliant a lovely Scottish cast um and lovely Demi Moore who was lovely I really really liked her she was very sweet I really love hearing that because I think obviously sometimes there's people put celebrities on a pedestal so much and anybody I've kind of spoken to when you're at that level of fame most people kind of say actually they're the loveliest people it tends yeah. to be the people who are kind of like not at that point that tend to have the attitudes. But um, so it's always really lovely to hear that. So that was your first, since we are in our spooky season. Yeah. Um, so that was your first horror. Um, it was, and, I would describe it more, it was less horror, more haunting. It was, it was a bit ghosts. Yeah. So, and I played a Dahulak which is in Scottish is a kind of mythical um, characters in Scottish folklore who see the dead and can speak to the dead. But the brilliant, lovely part about the way it was written was I don't always know that the person I'm talking to is dead. Brilliant. I just think it's a person. So one of my first scenes is um, obviously you, the audience, know that she's lost her child. He's drowned in the canal in Camden. And she's a writer. And then she walks up a beach and there's a swing and it's just swinging. And I say to her, I was, your, your little boy's looking for you. And she stops, look like, 
what? And I'm like, your boy, he's looking for you. He was on the swing. And it's just really haunting Mm. where the moment, it's a lovely moment to play where I realise, oh, right, I've been talking to a dead child. And now I've just, just, you know, and the whole story is about this child um, coming to speak to me to give messages to her because her life is in danger. So it was a, it is a, I thought it was a great wee film. I mean, it was her sort of coming back out of her, you know, years of not having done very much. Which And I, I do think she is one of those actresses who, did, you know, was absolutely at the top of her game. You know, she was Hollywood's big star. And then... I don't she just disappeared and you know mm-hmm. in that way that Hollywood does to women over 31 <laughs> do you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. but yeah. anyway yeah she was lovely and then I sort of moved through my career and I did a, another great horror film we um I didn't have any scenes we but that was where I met lovely Kate Dickey um and that was massive fans of Kate Dickey on this podcast oh, adore Kate um, I, I'm not just a fan of her work, which I am a huge fan of. I'm a fan of Kate herself. Yes. I just adore her and love her um, and had such a great time on that film. I just remember being in Galway filming the interiors and sort of staying in the same hotel as Kate. And I, remember, I had great memory of standing in this wee shed one night because we popped it. it was back in the day when I used to have a wee cheeky cigarette and you had to go outside to smoke and we just got approached by this guy he had no idea who we were he just thought we were two women and he was just really creepy you know just a bit inappropriate and creepy and you know and we were both (laughs) such Scots women so can oh is that right really (laughs) instead of just going oh fuck off but yeah. when he walked away, she just went, oh, my God, he was really creepy. And we laughed our heads off because we'd been so polite to him, just like, you know, thinking if we, we will kill him with kindness. That's what we did. But that, I think that is so true, though. I think women are kind of like there is that thing in us, isn't it? Like not to take it into too deep of territory, but we kind of go, well, if we're if we're polite. Yeah. And we'll keep it nice and level. It'll all be all right. Yes. And they maybe just go away. Yeah. Um, but I, I just love that. Than, line, yeah. Of her going from being so sweet to the minute he was out of an earshot. She, oh, fuck, he was really creepy. <laughs> and we were like, oh, I didn't yeah. like that man. I don't know what he was doing. He was just weird. Anywho, so that was that film, Outcast. Quite a, a, a powerful story. It was the first time that I kind of, I'd ever seen horror almost be like a Ken Loach film but it was Mm -hmm. a horror film and it had a monster but it was also with a lot of sort of gritty realism Jimmy Nesbitt was in it as well and then that sort of brings me up to more recently where you know I've done a lot of other kind of films which didn't have the kind of spooky horror thing but um, I hadn't done a film for quite some time and I was approached by a first-time filmmaker to do um, a very low-budget horror film called, well, it was called Harbour at the time. It became Village in the Woods. And 
to be on it that was the freedom that I had that you get after having you know worked at such a sort of high end of filmmaking where you realize you're just a little cog in the wheel and you have that expectation of yourself that you have to be you know brilliant and you have to kind of blow it at the park but actually you're quite constrained by the fact that you know you're doing somebody else's work and I'm not saying that I didn't do Rain McCormick's work but because it was his first time film because it was low budget he gave us free reign to be very creative which takes me right back to Middlesex University where I trained in a very kind of heightened style and this was the first time on film that I thought I can use all those skills, all that kind of way that you can use a game or you can create characters that you might think are way over the top, but actually in the horror genre, um, I think you can play at that heightened style. And I also thought and always do and believe that the horror genre can sit very, very close to comedy. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And I just think if your script, which that was, wasn't gory horror, and I'm sure Rain wouldn't mind me saying this, it wasn't, it, it was, it became, it given a title um, eventually after it was made, which was that um, folk horror. You know, because Midsummer had come out, and then oh yeah, okay, Prime. yeah, and that's why I think it kind of found its way onto Amazon Prime. I think it's still there. I think you can still go on and watch it, and it was basically became almost like an homage to nineteen seventies folk hammer horror type stuff, and the women I played in it was incredibly camp and terribly English. I mean, it could almost have been considered, you know, xenophobic on my part because I I made her incredibly posh um, and worked with the um, lovely makeup girls who would do my hair because they were trying to make me look like this very kind of village woman, you know, lady of the manor. And we just had great fun with the hair and makeup because I remember one day she had done my hair and she was kind of combing it into this nice middle you know aged lady here and I went actually before you comb it before it goes into that it looks mental when you do the back combing thing so can I just leave it like that and she's like yeah (laughs) and that's the kind of freedom and choices you get to make you know and I was like because I I do I feel I'm starting to feel like I am like Margaret Thatcher on acid (laughs) To my my you know perception is probably the most terrifying character I can possibly think. I mean, of. I think there's quite a lot of us that we'd go with, completely agree on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that was I. I have to say that I I think Maddie, as she was called, Mad Maddie, <laughs> um, was one of the best fun characters I ever had to play, and I was playing opposite the brilliant Richard Hope who's also, you know, a big sort of um, complicity actor. And just when you get to 
very mischievous, naughty actors <laughs> together, like Richard Pope and Tres Bradley going, oh, let's do, you know, it was just great fun. And Becky Johnson and Little Beth and, you know, just a lovely cast of people who were really up for playing. It was fabulous. I loved it. So it just sounds like a joy of a job, like you say, and I think probably for people listening, maybe for people who are starting out or haven't maybe had as much experience in certainly film and television, that kind of sense and that pressure of when it's a big set, big job, big production of I need to come in, I need to nail it, I need to be amazing. And yeah, as you say, kind of blast it out of the water, but also be constrained because you are. Yeah. So I think just for people to kind of hear that is such a, great and insightful thing to have said so thanks so much for sharing that because I'm sure there'll be people who'll be like oh god yeah and then that freedom that you get on other jobs you get to balance it which is always lovely yeah and also I think the lesson I learned as well was that I can actually now go ahead in my career and I have enough experience to go on to the big massive films and equally play with as much creativity because you know you work on a big film with the lead like James McAvoy and you sort of play opposite him and go oh he's doing that he really plays and he plays and he keeps trying things and you know experimenting and he you it's just that thing a great thing when you train in that sort of Marcello Magni sort of style or or you work with somebody like Catherine Hunter, you you see these brilliant actors who are grown up adults really allowing themselves to step back into their child. You know, the way a child would play. A child wouldn't ask for permission to do a certain thing on camera or, you know, they yeah. just do it. Yeah. And of course, a director can step in and go, whoa, can you rein that in a bit? But um, you'll never know unless you give it a go. Or well, that's it. And the moments of play are sometimes the best, create the most amazing moments, I always think. Yeah. And it does it might not be the right moment, because I always think as well, like if you never try something, because even in the moments of failure, something beautiful can come out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's so important and I love that you know you talk about that and you're talking about people like James who play and just that permission to give back to ourselves as performers that you're still allowed to play yeah absolutely because I think we're all so especially when you're not at a certain level we're all so terrified as well because there's a lack of work there's a you know we're watching so many things in our industry you know like the Edinburgh Film Festival just you know going into administration which is devastating um that actually just go and play and remember why you love doing this because that's why you do it yeah and I think that's a brilliant way to to do every self-tape that you're given see it as an opportunity not that you're auditioning put that that's none of your business the outcome is going to be the outcome and you've got no control over that but if you approach every one of those tapes like you set up your wee camera and you get your lighting right and you have a play you know give yourself permission to play and to send in three takes that are you know one might be really heightened one might be natural but 
it kind of helps you to stop trying to second guess what it is they want because you'll never be able to guess what they want. You that's know. really that's really great advice um, because I think we all get in our heads when it comes to self-tapes as well. Um, yeah. Because you don't have that energy of somebody else in the room, so you're kind of trying to guess. But even in the room, we all do it. We're like, what is it that they actually want? And I'll just do it rather than just play and have fun. Yeah. And what, what can I bring to this? What can I do? You know, um, and there will be jobs that, honestly, I, I'm aware of them. There's certain jobs in the West End, you know, in London, where they really want you to go in and do the thing exactly as it's been done mm-hmm. a million times before. Mm-hmm. So you're stepping into what John Wright would call dead theatre. You're stepping into an arena where you are a puppet and they want you to do exactly formulaically what they want. And as an actor, like you say, if you've not had the work, if you want to do the West End, you know, go and see the show and do a little carbon copy of that particular thing. Or you can say, do you know what? No, thanks. You know, and you can get to decide. I mean, obviously financially we don't get to decide none of us we're all needing to earn a buck and especially in these times Mm -hmm. but um yeah it's a funny old world that we frequent you know especially as actresses yeah yeah funny old world but um yeah it's that thing don't ask permission and don't do obedient acting of course you know I think I've definitely I don't think there's a director that I've ever worked with I genuinely could say hand and heart who would ever go, oh, I'd never work with Tres Bradley again because she's disobedient. You know, I'm <laughs> very, very respectful of everything yeah. and everybody's job from every sort of part of a crew from all through every single function. I am very respectful of their job. But if I don't get to the end of my life going, I really did take some risks and I did allow myself you know don't ask permission in terms of spiritually emotionally in this career because you'll not get it <laughs> do you know what I mean? mm-hmm. nobody's going to grant you permission you've just got to go get it it's to the best of your ability and keep buoyant and keep you know keep yourself afloat yeah and um, today's I know obviously that you're a mum as well and like being a working mum in this industry if you don't mind chatting about it, I'd love to hear how you balance all of that because we never, because I really always want to hear interviewers and people ask dads that question and it never gets asked as much and barely ever actually. Um, and how you've found that particularly on sets, maybe when the children were younger, stuff like that. Well, I did have a very um, traumatic start to motherhood. I am... Um, unfortunately went into labour at 24 weeks gestation so I had an extreme prem baby it was he was 16 weeks premature um, and therefore had to be on life support and then in hospital for 16 weeks so I had thank god I mean the the uncanny sort of coincidence well they say there are no coincidences is that my agent, the brilliant Sandy Reese, now retired from Ken McCready's, um, had also had a prem baby like 30 years previous. 
So she literally went, darling, I'm taking you out of the game for at least a year. Um, so I had to kind of, I, I mean, it didn't it didn't feel like any great loss to me at the time because, you know, I had to, he had to come home in oxygen and I got him to a year, I got him to his first birthday and it was not long after that um, that I got Outcast, which was the Romanian, you know, the film with Kate. So that was my first film. But at the same time, I got a tiny little um, part playing, we hear this, it was a dirty job, Elaine, but somebody had to do it. And I basically had to run around Solcoats with wee Martin Compton just snogging him for two days. That was the whole film. I mean, somebody's <laughs> got to do it, right? Somebody's got to do it. And, you know, Martin, he needed it done at that time in his life. He needed this wee part when he had to run around Solcoats snogging I mean, him. Sunny Solcoats as well on top of it. Somebody's got to do that job. <laughs> It was the maddest thing. It was a thing that happened at the time, which was uh, Gaelic music was put to wee films and six different directors were asked to do these wee films. And I got put be lovely Martin Compton. Can you imagine? Even my husband, even my husband said, oh my God, I can't believe you're running around with this young guy who's like 15 years younger than you, who's really cute, really sweet and a lovely boy. <laughs> Snogging him for two days. Only who he was awfully good to me because I was definitely, you know, going back to your thing about being a um, mum. That obviously that was a very traumatic way to enter motherhood, Absolutely. and I to this day will always be grateful to lovely wee Martin Compton because actually I'm joking about it, but to do something like that after such a traumatic time, yeah, well, could have been not very easy or comfortable because I was feeling you know my body had bloated I had you know there was all sorts of things medically going on both with me and Leonard and um my god thank you god for sending me Martin Compton and not any other actors because I really needed someone to be you know and there he is what 15 years younger than me or something and he was just so lovely and grown up and really got it you really got mm-hmm. the fact that I've been through a really tough time yeah um so in terms of that I am now here at the age of the wee fellas 15 and I am going back to your question I'm in the classic struggle of being a carer for not a full-time carer but quite um hands-on carer um along with many others for my 89-year-old mum and my 15-year-old boy. Yeah. And it's probably, in terms of how that impacts my career, is this is one of the toughest times. Yeah. Where, you know, because I'm doing a job at the moment, I'm filming at the moment, um, lovely, I mean, ridiculously, going off to Malta for two weeks, um, which was fabulous. But, you know, I had little guilty feelings and then I had feelings of, um, actually, thank you, higher power, God, whatever, mm-hmm. whoever's put mm-hmm. this in my path, because I needed that break. I needed, yeah. you know, a wee bit of Therese time. Yeah. And I needed to be running around, you know, pretending that I was a wag for some Italian mafioso husband. You know, I needed to have that level of silliness and play. Absolutely. And, like, 
lie on a sunbed for basically two weeks because I was only on and I go to finish that um next week I go on the cruise ship luxury cruise ship because the whole dramas they're on board a cruise ship and I get to go on away for another week but yeah it's not easy but I am aware you know I only have one child and there's many actresses my peers who have some of them three four kids or you know and elderly parents because a lot of us actresses you know didn't have our children till later on that wasn't an active choice of mine that was just circumstantial because I didn't meet my husband till I was 35 so yeah yeah um, I was an older mum and that means I've got a you know octogenarian well almost going into her 90s um and yeah you do the best you can and you turn up um and you permit yourself to get on with your job as well yeah no. I thank, I'm just going to say thank you for sharing that because I think it's so important no matter what career you're in that people hear that because being a carer of whoever you are caring for you as the carer need to have time for you to recharge to be able yeah. to do that part of it but also to remind yourself of who you are so that you can feel okay and I think it's so important that we as a society a stop in some ways there's a certain judgment sometimes on that because unless someone is walking in someone else's shoes nobody knows what is going on and um, I think it's really great and important that you've said that and thank you very much and I um, really appreciate it. Um, also people who are listening and listening in Scotland will recognise your voice from uh, River City. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How long was you on River City for? Well, I've sort of, I I was never uh, or never had what's known as a contract of um, commitment or obligation. You know, I've never been like a regular, even though back in 2015, I was in, you know, nearly every episode of that particular series opposite Robin Laying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, the commitment was real certain points where the story became very police focused but um I've been coming in and out for 10 years wow yes. is that 10 years wow so my first episode was in 2011 um with little um Holly Jack and uh and it was lovely god she was a baby then I mean my the storyline was that she someone had um, had sex with her and she was under 16 and you know and there she is now the grown woman character and she is I know wow yeah, and gorgeous with it she is. so yeah and I, I honestly I have such I cannot stress how much affection and love I have for everybody on that production just you know knowing and I think obviously it's in I've kind of touched on it earlier knowing that there is a lot of danger in our industry at times with where we are put into certain situations where um, it's quite difficult to operate when you're playing in a production where someone is behaving really badly whether that's intimidating you bullying you or harassing 
in a sexual or other manner. It doesn't matter. It can make your life as an actress absolutely miserable and terrifying. Then you walk on to a production. Um, and a lot of that can happen. And we know we've seen in the press through people putting people on pedestals, mm -hmm. people not saying, you know, pulling people up for bad behaviour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you walk on to a production like River City and it really is like walking into a beautiful bath of socialism. <laughs> and I really thrive in that kind of environment. And that doesn't mean to say that everybody loves each other because of course they don't. There's, you know, that's life. I get that. But everybody respects each other and treats each other with kindness. Mm. And knows that we are all under the same kind of pressures to learn lines really quickly, to work really, really hard. And that's everybody from the people in the canteen to the cameraman to the actors in yeah. front of the camera uh, to the producers. They have to work really hard um, and don't have a massive budget. And I, you know, yeah. So when, when that's done in a team spirit, I think it's just the best feeling and really yeah, again, takes me back to my training. It's got to be about the ensemble. It isn't oh, about, absolutely. you know, yeah. if it isn't, I'm not interested because, you know, I, I, I cannot act on my own, you know. Yeah. Got to be in a scene with other people. Yeah. Um, apart from, if, obviously, if it's a monologue, but, you know, generally. <laughs> no, I know, I know exactly, other. yeah. And even, even with a monologue, I'm working with the writer, you know what I yeah. mean? I'm in the scene with the writer and their words and... I think it's really important for young actors to understand that you don't want to be acting on your own. It's bad. It it's is so bad. It's not good for you. Like, I think yeah. I told, I mean, I'm ensemble. I was part of Poor Boy Ensemble for seven years and like being in an ensemble like that is so, it's so important. And it for me, it totally embodies everything that I believe what yeah. we are doing with our craft and how we work and um, how we should work and actually that goes for everyone whether that's our crew and director and lighting if you're on stage in the same if you're on a set we are an ensemble making a piece of work together we are creating yeah. it together it's not just one person's voice or one person's vision we're all in it making it work yeah absolutely and that's beautiful and I love it when that happens it's like yeah. my favorite thing tingles I love that <laughs> <laughs> um, since we've talked about your uh, some of your horror films and stuff, do you have any spooky stories? Have you had any spooky experiences? Um, or ghostly or spiritual ones? Oh, I've definitely uh, had powerful emotional spiritual moments where... Oh, well, right, I'm going to take a big deep breath. Okay, do we need to do? And also you don't have to share it if you don't want to. Um, but yeah, my baby was born on the 6th of August, 2007, 16 weeks too early. And in August, in hospitals, you're mainly dealing with student doctors. And when this young student doctor who's never you know come across a woman get into labor at that time uh, started to shake because she couldn't get the cannula because she was so terrified and 
this really traumatic thing was happening to me in I was given birth I felt I felt the presence of my father so powerfully in the room. It was almost like I could hear his voice. And everything just, I became so calm, so super focused that I was able to put my hand on her hand and tell her, you can do this. Oh, today. Oh, oh. yeah. And the focus that came into being and the presence of my dad, I lost my dad when I was 14, was phenomenally powerful. And I still believe to this day he was there. Oh, absolutely. You know, so in terms of ghostly, it's not in terms of a spooky kind of feeling. Yeah. It was the most powerful spiritual experience of my life was that moment of feeling the presence of someone who obviously you know anyway my son's called her <laughs> oh. thank you so much for sharing that um I'm sure um everybody listening will be really grateful for that and um probably like me have lots of tears in their eyes um, <laughs> it's really beautiful and I agree with you absolutely he absolutely was there absolutely and to have that moment of clarity and kindness in yourself to say to that young doctor I am sure that sits with her forever so yeah thank you but in terms of comic speaking (laughs) thanks for that (laughs) you know to take you to the other side um, I I I was I'm the youngest of eight. Oh, so wow, I, okay. Yeah. I have five brothers and two sisters, and I've one brother in particular, my brother James, who throughout our whole entire childhood would go to any lengths to absolutely put the shitters up us. <laughs> was a genius he was also and still is a brilliant artist so his drawings were horrifically beautiful and intricate but always monsters and James would do the kind of thing where I remember this is the 70s where you're watching your hammer house of horrors James would come in and sneak up upstairs and hide under a bed for two hours that so is dedication. That was dedication so that nobody knew he was there. And then we would all, you know, everybody would go to bed and he'd go, Martin. Because <laughs> um, there was like five of them. So there like four of them are in the same room. And Martin and Joseph were the twins. And he'd be like, Martin. And Joseph would be like, did you hear somebody? And, he'd be like, and then he would wait till they'd started to fall asleep again. And he'd go, Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, he was a genius at terrifying people, but traumatising them. I mean, yeah, the the level of dedication, James, I have to give you a high five on that. Like, outstanding work. (laughs) And then he would literally 
carried on doing that to the next generation and the next generation <laughs> where the grandkids would be like, Uncle James, Uncle James, can you skate us? <laughs> and he would always like, he would do things like put the lights out at the mains. He would turn the electricity off and then he'd put his hand through doors <laughs> with just enough light to see a glinting knife. Oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> so we grew up with a love of spooky horror in our house, which is, um, you know, continued into the next generations. Yeah, is- and continued into your career yeah. as well. Um, just before we finish up, there is a question that we ask all of our guests. And um, so the reason we're called Persistent and Nasty is we took kind of two political moments when we kind of founded, when we were founded, founded, when Louise and I started Persistent and Nasty. And one of them was the quote about Elizabeth Warren, nevertheless, she persisted. And then the second one is about reclaiming words because um, we're very much on that, like especially words that are used against women, you know, bitch, witch, um, mm-hmm. bossy, you know, all those things that are never used against men. But um it was when the previous president of the United States was campaigning and uh, called Hillary Clinton a nasty woman for, get, for daring to give him facts. So there was then a Twitter storm of like all these surgeons and CEOs coming out going, well, I'm a nasty woman. So we really are claiming that word. Um, so, Tresla Adley, what does the phrase persistent and nasty mean to you? Oh, I'm definitely on board with both those words. Um, I think that my persistence has definitely allowed me to overcome horrendous traumas and uh, come out the other end laughing. And I definitely, definitely reclaim my right to have a nasty sense of (laughs) humour. You know what I mean? It's like everything that's ever kind of tried to oppress or put me down. And I, I, and I will say on that, that often it is our own selves that can do that. But you have to overcome the societal condemnation of, you know, yeah, I am definitely not a palatable woman. I'm definitely a nasty one. <laughs> yes, welcome to the club. <laughs> Oh, Therese, I could literally speak to you for hours and hopefully at some point I'll be able to meet you in life and have a glass of wine with you and uh, we can chat more and more. Um, But thank you so much for coming on and chatting to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure and joy. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Until next time, lovely listeners, stay nasty. Stay nasty. (laughs) Yes!